0: This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. This week on the show, we are having a couple of conversations about education in America, who our system is and isn't serving, and who's doing surprisingly well. My first guest on the show today is sociologist Emily Rosenbaum. Her work looks at immigration, and recently she's been looking at first, second, and third generation American kids and how they're doing in school. Later, we'll speak with author Donna Foote. In her book, Relentless Pursuit, A Year in the Trenches with Teach for America, Foote looks at four teachers in a high school in the second largest and one of the most problem-ridden districts in the country. We'll speak with her in a moment, but first, Emily Rosenbaum joined me in the studio earlier this week to talk about her recent work on immigration and education. In her work, Rosenbaum's looking at first, second, and third generation Americans and how they fare on standardized math and reading tests. In analyzing data on this, she and other researchers have unearthed an interesting phenomenon which they are now trying to explain. I began our conversation by asking Rosenbaum about that.
1: Well, um, this project was motivated partly... By an interest in a notion called immigrant optimism, which derived from findings of previous research of generational differences in which the second generation, the U.S.-born kids of foreign parents and foreign-born kids were actually doing better in school than third-generation kids once you statistically removed the effect of factors that would inhibit their performance, such as lower socioeconomic status, English language problems, so on and so forth. And so this um, overperformance or better performance, let's just say, relative to the third plus generation led researchers to develop this notion of immigrant optimism, uh, which basically refers to a set of um, attitudes and behaviors and also relationships that help to buoy up immigrant kids' Uh, educational performance. So it leads to lower levels of dropping out and better test scores than you would otherwise expect or see just by looking
0: at their scores per se. Tell me a little bit about this idea of immigrant optimism. What does that mean on the ground?
1: Um, well, on the ground, immigrant optimism would mean um, less cynicism towards the role of education. Um, So immigrants come here largely to seek a better life and to seek better opportunities for themselves, but also for their kids. And so this um, the selectivity, if you will, for determination and the belief in education as a as a factor in um, in success and your life success and the link between education and the kind of job you're going to do and the kind of income you're going to earn propels immigrant kids and the sons and daughters of immigrants to overcome their sets of disadvantages, again, like low socioeconomic status and English language problems. So um, the support that they get at home from the immigrant community and their own behaviors to um, match that support. So never being truant, doing homework, doing lots of hours of homework and actually doing homework, uh, reduced levels of socializing, all sorts of pro-school attitudes and behaviors are wrapped up into um, this notion of immigrant optimism, along with the relationships with, within the family and between the family and the rest of the ethnic community.
0: So you have this idea of optimism or immigrant optimism. Are there any other sort of notions that have been put forth to explain why there might be these disparities in performance? Um, not entirely. I mean, we
1: would expect from traditional assimilation research that um, over time, and as immigrant families or their descendants achieved more, that the ethnic group would melt into the rest of uh, the mainstream society. So the fact that immigrant kids would do almost as well as third generation kids, once you removed these, uh, statistically, these these um, factors that inhibit their performance isn't so new. But the fact that they're doing better than the third generation suggests that there's something really good about the immigrant experience and something maybe not
0: so good about the native-born experience with respect to achievement in school. So what are some of those good and not good things? What are some aspects of the experience you might look at?
1: Uh, well, again, since uh, immigrants tend to come seeking better opportunities, immigrant kids and kids of immigrants are imbued with this notion of optimism, but also they are reminded of, of the sacrifices that their family has made for their future. So, um, so insofar as their relationships are positive— within the home, um, their behavior conforms to these expectations in, uh, native born homes. Whereas, you know, many native born homes have these expectations and these behaviors and so on and so forth. There can be more cynicism about what education will get you in the future. Okay. And so leading, uh, students to question, do I invest in my education now? Or if I can just go out and get a job and make a living, why should I go to college? You know, why should I finish high school? Uh, but for immigrant kids, um, the determinism or determination, really, of their parents and the um, the positive resources in that, that they can give within the family and from the ethnic community keeps students' own sights high and keeps their optimism high about what they will get later if they just play the game by the rules now.
0: So we're talking about immigrants to the United States. Obviously, mm-hmm. that is a gigantically diverse group of people, not only in terms of where they come from, but also in terms of the reasons that they come to the United States, is it worth looking at immigrants as one mass of people? And how do you sort of control for all these differences? There is a huge degree of diversity, and in this
1: first stage of this project, I was just looking mainly at differences between generations with statistical controls for broad race ethnicity, but um, different. Um ethnic groups have different levels of resources and obviously different cultural approaches to education and uh, and many other things and so the next stage of the project is really to look at specific groups per se, such as mexicans um Chinese, depending on how um, how large the the samples are within this data set per se to see how these factors that work to the advantage of immigrant kids in the entire sample work for them or not work for them or just as strongly or, or more weakly or in the opposite direction. You know, what are the differences between ethnic groups basically and how these things work? So in a nutshell, what have you found and what does it mean? Well, we found that um, immigrant kids and the kids of immigrants have a lot of advantages um, that lead to higher Uh, levels of performance in school on standardized tests and in dropping out and all. Um, But they also have disadvantages. And all of these things are measured relative to what the third generation has. Okay. Um, And although when you look at their performance without taking into account other things, it looks like immigrant kids are doing worse than the third generation, the advantages that they have outweigh the disadvantages statistically and their performance actually exceeds that of the third generation. So they have all sorts of um, benefits and advantages that, that are inherent to the immigrant experience and the immigrant community that helps them to raise their performance relative to what the third generation can do.
0: So what happens after the first generation that things start to sort of to change in terms of the orientation towards school?
1: Well, it's unclear. I mean... Um, there's this idea that assimilation for many groups really isn't that good a thing, you know, that the U S approach in different areas of social life and health can actually be damaging to groups. And so this, this sort of uh, downward trajectory in um, educational outcomes suggests that assimilation may have sort of a dark side. There's a lot of evidence that uh, immigrants have better health outcomes than do uh, their native born counterparts. And even without taking account of any other contributing factors, higher birth weight, uh, a range of things. And so um, so there's this idea that even though there's a national tendency to um, be less than caring for immigrants, let's just say, um, immigrants arrive here with a number of strengths and a number of benefits to society and relative to, um, to U.S. society that wither away the longer that they're here. And so, um, so rather than thinking that there's something wrong with the immigrants or the ethnic groups, maybe there's something that's less than healthy about the U.S.
0: You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest in the studio this week is Fordham University sociologist Emily Rosenbaum. We're talking about immigration and education. In a few minutes, we'll speak with author Donna Foote about Teach for America in one of the nation's toughest schools. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Emily Rosenbaum. You talk about or you look at um, social capital in this. I've heard that phrase many times and never really understood it. Tell me how it works here. Well, social capital consists of uh, the resources that are... uh, embedded
1: within social relationships. So generally speaking, there are two forms of social capital with respect to kids. Um, one is within family social capital and one is between family social capital. So within family social capital consists of the kinds of resources and um, knowledge that parents can give to kids and also that siblings can give to to kids. So it can be good or bad, right? If you have um, badly behaving siblings, they're, they're a a role model of bad behavior for you. But if your parents have um, connections to other people that um, broaden your perspective, broaden your horizon, or give you access to other people with other ideas and other resources themselves, that can be a benefit. The between family social capital consists of resources, as I said, that, that um, reside in the links between families and between families and social institutions. So this would be the interrelationships and the reciprocity, um, perhaps, between parents within a school that could um, provide more of a of an enclosed network for kids that would inhibit any delinquent behavior because it's more than just their parents' eyes watching them, um, but also links to the school personnel who might then take um, a stronger interest in um, individual students because if their parents are involved, the teachers have to... Uh, respond directly to the
0: parents instead of just a parent at home kind of thing. Let me ask you, um, immigration now is a lot hairier than, well, maybe it's not, but it seems like it's a lot hairier now than it used to be. It's a lot more complicated. There's a lot more different things happening. People are coming from all over the place. This phenomenon that you're looking at, is that a modern thing or do you think it's something that may have been going on all along?
1: Well, I think that a number of the processes have always been there. Uh, You know, within family, social capital is always, um, you know, it exists independent of historical time period. And well, I shouldn't say that. But um, a number of these processes were present in earlier uh, waves of immigration as well as today. But the thing that differentiates today from earlier periods is that education is much more important in um, securing a stable job and a well-paying job than it was even 30 years ago. And so insofar as there are groups who uh, disproportionately are left by the wayside um, and don't graduate high school and thus are, are um, stuck in low-wage, no-benefit, no, benefit, no possible, possibility of mobility jobs, um, that's not good for anybody. Basically. So we all basically have a stake in the educational attainment of of all kids.
0: One of the things that affects the ways that kids do in school, as much as we might not want to think about this, is the fact that their teachers have particular opinions about them. For immigrant kids, how does that affect them? Well, this is something that could really
1: vary across group groups because there are ethnic groups that are um, stereotyped as the model minority. And so teachers may have um, may have expectations based on stereotypes that they're going to perform well and that they are going to be teacher's pets, and so they behave towards them in that way. Whereas there are other groups who may be stigmatized or racialized, um, and so teachers may act on stereotypes that these kids will um, behave badly or are less than intelligent or, you know, any other kind of negative stereotype and then behave towards them in that way. So uh, these practices could clearly build an additional stratification or separation between groups, regardless
0: of how individuals are performing. I know you're just beginning this work, but I will ask you this. If we want to learn lessons from the children of immigrants in terms of how they're performing in school. What can we learn from them? How can we change things so that more kids do better? Um, Well, the main ways that
1: policy or that change can come from the outside in would be to affect the way that schools are organized and how they integrate parents from different groups and different um, uh, immigrant statuses to be involved in the school insofar as they have time to be but to be involved and to be aware of what's going on with their kids and and um and how to help them do the best that they possibly can the disadvantages that kids may have that immigrant kids may have within the family which are fewer than those um linking the family to outside institutions it's not really the place of policymakers to go into families and try to reorganize them. So that's not really, that's not really the material to learn from. That's just the immediate context of kids' lives to understand. And insofar as we understand those variations or those differences among uh, kids, especially characterized by immigrant status, then school programs that might accentuate the bad stuff that's happening or um, dull the good stuff that's happening, could be transformed to take advantage of the good stuff and to reverse the bad
0: stuff. I'll ask you one more question and I'll close to this. What does all of this mean for the way that we think about assimilation? Um, I think that
1: we really need to recognize that um, despite the strengths of U.S. society and the opportunities um, available, Um, in the economy, in the labor force, and educational system, that opportunities are not evenly distributed across groups defined either by nativity status but also by race and ethnicity. So we need to recognize that while there are lots of strengths in the U.S., it's not a perfect place, and we could do a lot better in how in how opportunities, or we can do a lot better by providing greater opportunities to groups who may
0: have less than ideal sets of opportunities available to them. Well, Emily Rosenbaum is a professor of sociology at Fordham. Emily, thanks for talking to me. Thank you for having me. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses.
1: Conjunction, Junction, how's that function? I got three
2: favorite cars that get most of my job done. Conjunction, Junction, what's their function? I got and, but, and or, they'll get you pretty far. And, that's an additive like this and
0: that. But This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and And WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. A little later on this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey On today's show, Secrets of the Subway, that's ahead at 7.30. But first, for a year, journalist Donna Foote followed four Teach for America teachers as they worked at one of the nation's toughest schools, Locke High School in Los Angeles. Her book, Relentless Pursuit, chronicles their year and tells the story of Teach for America, an unusual nonprofit organization that's been placing teachers in under-resourced schools since 1990. That book's out now in paperback from Picador. I spoke to Donna Foote by phone from her home in L.A. Donna Foote, thanks for talking with me. Oh,
2: you're welcome. My pleasure.
0: I have to say that reading your book, I was very surprised to learn some things about Teach for America, and most of those revolved around the fact that TFA is so intense. Tell me a little bit about Teach for America and their recruiting and their training of teachers.
2: Well, um, as you know, Teach for America is a nonprofit that recruits the top college grads to teach in low-income schools. It it kind of is run like the way we used to think of Fortune 500s before the crash of the market. So it kind of has a head of a, a really high-flying, uh, high-achieving uh, business, and it has the heart of a nonprofit. So uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, hybrid in which you know high goals are set and and Achievement is tracked and and the uh, business model requires constant fine-tuning and the idea is sort of relentless pursuit of results and That happens in the classroom among the recruits and also within the organization
0: You talk about the um, the recruitment and training process of several of these Well of four of these recruits tell me about how that worked
2: Um, It's very very intense. They, They it's referred to as boot camp and Believe me, it's like a boot camp. Um, the recruits spend five weeks um, in this intense environment in which they are uh, being uh, taught some of the uh content that they need to to um, be successful in classrooms and 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 then they themselves are teaching during the day as well and they have homework and and lesson plans and it's a very, very intense um Experience that really bonds them, and uh, Teach for America hopes prepares them as well as one can in five weeks for the rigors of the classroom.
0: But even prior to the boot camp, there's this recruitment process that I was surprised some of them even being recruited without their knowledge.
2: Well, it's really interesting that, um, that Teach for America really has been competing with the investment banking firms and and the high uh, flying consulting firms, and you know, obviously the salaries are salaries of starting teachers, so, um, you know, it's tough. So what Teach for America decided in order to stay, to stay competitive was to actually seek out the um, candidates that, that they wanted to apply because they believed they'd be successful. So they have this incredible network across the country in... Over 400 colleges, in which, through talking to student uh, leaders and professors, they have identified leaders um, on campus, and they believe that they know what it takes to be a good teacher. And and basically, that is anyone who has the qualities of a good leader will almost certainly, they believe, succeed in the classroom. So they target um, who they want, and they barrage them with emails. They invite them to teas. There are dinners. They set up their desks at recruitment fairs, but they're not waiting around hoping that the right people will come to them. They go out and seek the best and the brightest.
0: You spent a year following several TFA teachers in one high school, which was in L.A. Why did you choose Lock High?
2: Well, I chose Lock High uh, for a couple of reasons. One was that it's the largest cluster of Teach for America teachers in uh, Los Angeles school district. The other reason was, to be honest, I knew Lock High because I had a friend who had made a, a midlife career switch from journalism to teaching, and and she had asked me to come in to look at the school because after um, being certified herself over a, a, in a traditional program, she found herself in this urban classroom and was underwater. I mean. You know, she really found it very, very difficult and wanted me to see it. And I walked in, and there was my friend at the front of the classroom, uh, a ninth-grade English class, and she was enunciating, sounding out words like cat, kuh, act, cat for ninth-graders. And this was not remedial English. This was the English class. And um, so... After being shocked by this, um, she told me later that, that many of the teachers that she had begun to bond with were Teach for America recruits and and mentioned that Locke was a, a site for training in the summer. And I thought, wow, um, this is pretty interesting because I had been watching Teach for America and, and that year had seen that um, something like 17,000 college seniors had applied, and among them were 12% of the graduating class of Yale and 11% at Harvard. And um, and I thought, hmm, this would be really interesting. Why don't I look at how we educate our most impoverished uh, students through the eyes of our most privileged? And uh, Locke seemed to be the perfect laboratory for that.
0: Locke is a pretty tough school.
2: Locke is a very tough school. Um, Very, um, but not... I mean, very, very tough, but not, uh, sadly, not unique. Uh, In many urban cities, you'll you'll have the same kind of numbers, like 2% proficient in algebra, 11% proficient in English. One-third of the staff turns over each year. Really unconscionable situation in terms of learning. These kids are so disadvantaged, even before they walk in the door.
0: The thing that kind of got me reading it was the the existence of lockdowns and the concerns oh, yeah. about safety in the school.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, at mid-year, uh, the thing is, the things are so dysfunctional uh, in big, uh, a big urban district like uh, LA Unified that the, the administration doesn't even know how many students it actually has and how many are attending and how many have dropped out. So mid-year, anyway, the, the, the school psychologist reckoned that, you know, up to – Twenty kids had died, probably. Not all of them were students. Some of them were dropouts. But, uh, you know, it's an everyday occurrence. You know, when I was there uh, in December, a, um, a sister um, killed her sister, <laughs> and uh, both of them uh, lock students in a little fight in the morning before they got to school. It's, um, it's pretty bad.
0: Locke has a pretty long and involved history with Teach for America.
2: It does. It it, it has, um, it, it, it had, Teach for America is about, is now 19 years old, but um, Locke, I would say since the early 2000s, for the last seven years or so, has, has really been using a lot of uh, Teach for America teachers, and to good effect, you know. I mean, having said that, you know, Locke is, has always been a troubled school, is now, has now been taken over by Green Dot Charter School and um, still has a lot of Teach for America teachers there.
0: Your story obviously is, you know, it's a, it's a positive story ultimately, but a lot of people do say negative things about Teach for mm-hmm, America. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell me a little bit what those are?
2: Um, well, Teach for America has a, uh, you know, a very abbreviated training course and so you could, uh, and many people do argue, that how could five weeks prepare anyone for the rigors of the urban classroom? Um, and so, the, so it is an abbreviated training course, and, and the argument would be that that sort of devalues the profession of teaching. If, um, if you can be trained in five weeks, um, what's the point of doing a two-year you know, master's program. So there's that. The other the other issue is teacher churning. And one of the major problems in, in our big um, dysfunctional, or those schools anyway that are dysfunctional in, in the urban cities or in the rural areas is that um, the teacher turnover is just horrendous and leads to more instability. And if you have teachers cycling in and out in two years, that does not um, – bode well for, you know, a a cohesive staff. The problem is real, because many of the Teach for America teachers do leave after two years, and and Teach for America actually expects that to happen. Everyone um, agrees that that can add to teacher churning. The problem, though, is not just peculiar to Teach for America. It's uh, teachers all across the country are bailing. One-third of all teachers, new teachers leave within three years, and half leave within five years. So this is not a problem um, of Teach for America's making, and uh, it's certainly one that's um, endemic across the, across the board in American education. So it, it, that really argues for us to really address the problems that are plaguing so many of our dysfunctional, low-performing schools.
0: Isn't there also a criticism that, you know, if why is this, you know, just a few weeks training program good enough for inner city kids, you know, kids in middle class right. communities wouldn't accept that?
2: Right. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, that's true. They they would not accept that. Um, but the reality is without Teach for America teachers in these inner city schools, you, you're not going to get the suburban teachers, that uh, you know, to teach in schools with conditions like this. So at Locke, if you don't have a Teach for America teacher who, um, a- at the very least, is bright and enthusiastic and, you know, has gone through this rigorous, albeit shortened, training, the alternative is an, uh, a long-term sub who has no training and, and um, oftentimes, you know, doesn't expect to do any teaching. They're babysitting. So um, until we can figure out how to get our best teachers into our worst schools, um, the argument, uh, I think, is, is misdirected, really.
0: Well, Donna Foote is the author of Relentless Pursuit, A Year in the Trenches with Teach for America, which is now out in paperback from Picador. Donna Foote, thanks for talking with me.
2: Thank you very much.
0: wfuv this has been fordham conversations the show's available as a podcast at wfuv.org and it's also in our audio archive which is also on our website if you have any comments or questions about today's show you can email us our address is fordham conversations at wfuv.org and we would of course love to hear from you i'm nora Flaherty. cityscape is next thank you for listening and have a wonderful weekend is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.